0: All right, it is the week of July 18th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we'll be talking about the ESPN Plus price increase. It's an interesting time given inflation and everything else going on, but ESPN has decided to increase the price of ESPN Plus from $6.99 a month to $9.99 a month starting in August. We're going to break down why the company has decided to do that, especially right now. Uh, Then we're going to talk about Nate Diaz's contract. So a lot of new information has come out about Diaz's contract since we we last talked about it. We've got some comments by Dana White that's been refuted by a couple fighters. We're going to examine everything about his contract as well as if his last fight is against Hamzat Shemaev in the main event of UFC 279. What's best for business for Nate Diaz post-UFC? We're going to break that down as well. We're going to do our quick hits section. Got some interesting TV contract notes, uh, UFC lobby notes, one championship stuff we got to go over, and then lastly, we're going to look at a question that we often look at here um, under a slightly different lens, given this time frame, the current current events time frame, so to speak. Would it be good business for promotions to increase fighter pay in 2023? We're going to break that down from a promotion perspective, fighter perspective, fan, all of that as well. Answer that question. So we've got the timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. First thing we have to talk about is ESPN plus raising those prices, jacking those prices up 43% from $6.99 a month to $9.99 a month. If you're, in the U.S. at least, I'm assuming most countries actually based at, based off of what I'm seeing, um, inflation is very high, economic uncertainty looms. Very interesting time for ESPN to say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and jack the price up 43%, especially because that type of increase is not the subtle increase that you see with almost all services where consumers mostly ignore them or expect them. And so it's kind of baked into the agreement with the consumer renewing or or buying a service. And instead, it's enough of one to catch the eye of those that have, you know, paid for this monthly service. Now, disposable income wise, it's not going to break the bank necessarily, right? It's $3 more a month, uh, so 36 a year. Not, in most cases, not going to, you know, Really break the bank. But it's still enough of a jump, because it's 43%, that consumers are gonna do a double take. It's in the news, it's it's got focus. I've seen some social media posts about it about it um, by people who are not happy. It's it's an interesting call. Why would ESPN do this? Why wouldn't they just say, hey, we're bumping it up to $7.99 a month? Or even eight. It's not great if it's eight, but it's still like a little bit more expected. Nine is, is a big increase. Why do it? Well, a couple reasons. So one thing we have to do as MMA fans sometimes is, especially the hardcore hardcores, we have to step back and realize that we have somewhat of a myopic view on things or myopic, <clears throat> whichever way you say it. Um, this is part of ESPN's long-term strategy and it has very little to do with MMA. Right? The end goal for ESPN Plus is to eventually become what ESPN on cable is right now just as a standalone service. That's always been the end goal. That's where they want to get to. It's better for ESPN Plus or um, and ESPN, it's better for Disney as a whole. It cuts out the middleman of distribution and cable networks and all this stuff and cable providers. It is and always has been the long-term strategy here. From a article by The Motley Fool, which, yes, we will keep keep judgments about The Motley Fool out of it for right now because this is good information, um, titled, uh, let's see here. It is titled... Disney's latest ESPN Plus price increase, what smart investors need to know. Now, yes, again, motley foolish, but good info in here in that there is near price parity between ESPN Plus and ESPN on cable right now, which is huge. That's something that when ESPN launched not that long ago, it seemed very much out of reach. But right now, estimates are varying, but saying, according to this article, although estimates vary from one source to another, ESPN generates on the order of $7 to $8 per cable viewer per month for for Disney. So that essentially means that ESPN Plus is almost making as much money per viewer as they are on, on ESPN Plus than they are on cable, which is a very big deal. This price increase is going to bring that to parity or maybe even give ESPN Plus the slight advantage. Cable is still going to make more money overall just because the overall number of viewers, right? Um, There are not, you know, 100 million people tuning into ESPN Plus every day or whatever the, the cable numbers are nowadays. I know it's varied quite a bit, especially in the decline over the past 4 or 5 years but the the more espn can make per viewer over cable the faster they can start to move that cable type programming to espn plus now it's going not going to be a one to one move right you're not going to wake up one morning and see all of espn now on this standalone service espn plus my, my guess is you're going to see a toned-down version of, of it highlighting successful shows and very popular shows and seeing a lot of fat being cut from the cable channel. Because if you know how ratings work in cable, right? They're not exactly super scientific all the time. Um, whereas streaming service you're going to be able to tell very quickly what shows are doing well or what events are doing well and what is not doing so well. And that's going to help you with marketing. That's going to help you with budget. It's it's going to do so much. It's going to give you so much more data that you can analyze and, and use to power your decisions. Makes all the sense in the world why ESPN and Disney are moving that way. This price increase will also get them into the black or near into the black, right? Um, so ESPN plus has been a money losing venture. It always was going to be while they launched it and got it off the ground. This price increase is going to get them to a point where it will start being profitable or at least looks that way. When that happens, that's a very big deal because ESPN has had rough cuts from the network over the past you know five ten years, it's been a lot of layoffs, a lot of especially the actually five, six years, a lot of layoffs. Um, a, a lot of trimming fat. There's been rumors about Disney trying to sell the property. If they can make it profitable, that's very big. If ESPN Plus can become profitable and be a, a money driving part of the business for Disney's overall strategies and goals. That's pretty huge because that's been something they've been trying to do since the rise of streaming, honestly. So this helps that part of the equation as well. It is a big increase. There will be people who will, you know, cut the corn and say, what no, I'm not, or cut the, cut the stream. I guess. I don't know what the equivalent of that is, honestly, but there will be people that do that because of this price increase, but still, They've probably crunched the numbers on this and said, okay, this still makes sense to do. And it's also important to keep in mind that the bundle of Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus is not changing, at least right now, which is a very smart move by Disney. Because yes, ESPN Plus is now pretty expensive. But now, if I want to watch, you know, sports and, you know, I'm a big ESPN Plus guy and I'm a new consumer, or so. Rather, let me let me bet let's say I'm a a, you know existing customer, right? If it's now going up to $9.99 a month and I just have ESPN plus, that bundle that's sitting at $13.99 right now is gonna look a lot more tempting. Like, well, all right, I'm already going up to $9.99 and I've wanted to watch a show or two on Hulu or you know, my kids love Disney, you know, screw it. We'll go up to $13.99. Let's get the whole bundle. That's the appeal to existing customers, to new customers. I'm now coming in saying, oh man, I want to watch, you know, UFC, I want to watch golf, baseball, NFL, which we'll get to here in a minute. Um, I'll get ESPN plus, but oh, it's $9.99. Well, you know what? I might as well again, $3 more. Sure. Three or $4 more. I'll go ahead and, you know, get this bundle and get Hulu and Disney plus as well. Might as well get it all right now. It's a, ploy in the same vein as it is to increase profitability on ESPN plus Aside, side, it's also a good ploy and strategy by Disney to leave their bundle the same price because it leads more people towards that bundle, which again, in the grand scheme scheme of things, even though ESPN plus would be what $14 would be around, you know, four and a half dollars or something like that um, for per service, when combined with Disney Plus and Hulu. Overall, Disney's making money from that, right? Otherwise, they're not offering the bundles. And the bundles will eventually raise in prices as well. I don't think we're going to see a $3 jump, but I wouldn't be shocked if a year from now, we see a $2 bump in the Disney Plus bundles, right? So... That all in combination with, as I mentioned a second ago, NFL games. Select NFL games are now going to be available on ESPN+. Plus. The rights for those are expensive. Very expensive. So they kind of have to raise the price at least a little bit in order to help pay for those and keep their profitability, keep their margins growing. But the fact that you're going to have select NFL games, Monday Night Football games on ESPN Plus. It makes sense to raise the price right now before you start showing those because a bunch of people now who have had no real interest in ESPN Plus who have been able to say, nah, I don't really wanna look at that are going to look at ESPN Plus because they wanna watch football, right? There's a ton of football fans who will say, man, I definitely wanna watch football. Think about the, if it's on ESPN Plus exclusively, which I'm not sure if it is at this point or not, but if that's the eventual goal, think about how many bars and and how many places are going to have to get ESPN Plus just to show the Monday night game, right? It's, again, all part of the long-term strategy. Um, This article also has some comments here from the Disney CEO, Bob Chapik, which says, quote, what we're doing is sort of putting one foot on the dock, if you will, and one foot on the boat right now. But we know that at some point when it's going to be good for our shareholders, we'll be able to fully go into an ESPN DTC, which is direct to consumer offering. He also conceded that quote, the hesitancy to move too fast away from those linear networks is really a cash flow situation. That's about as blunt as it can be in terms of like, yeah, we're, we're getting rid of ESPN cable. We want to be ESPN streaming only. Maybe they'll give it another name. It won't be ESPN plus. It'll be something else, but they are definitely, that's where they want to go. This is part of that vision as MMA fans. Does it suck? Sure. Especially if you're just on the monthly 699 right now, uh, that it's not great. Cause if all you want to do is watch MMA, this just got more expensive for you. If you're a general sports fan though, or if you were, ESPN or Disney this is this is now more intriguing because they're getting more rights to live events. They want more of those big four basketball, baseball, uh hockey and football events on ESPN Plus exclusively. They've got golf, they've got, you know, a lot of college stuff. This is this is good business for them. And I'm sure they've crunched the numbers saying, "Yeah, it's a big jump. It's 43%, but you know, what is our subscriber loss going to really be?" Because live sporting content is the hottest thing in streaming right now. Right? You've seen the way the UFC has renegotiated streaming deals and TV rights deals all over the map. Imagine that for the big four sports. What do you think those are doing right now? Right? So, yes, it sucks if you're a hardcore MMA fan and you don't watch other sports, but it's, I guess it was always inevitable. And it's, it's part of, the shift that's going on right now. So expect more shifting, because I don't think this is the last increase we're gonna see. And if ESPN gets to its direct to consumer model sooner rather than later, that's gonna be more expensive by a lot more, I would imagine. UFC was just the ground floor. You got in early, you got to watch your your events, yeah, it was, you know, 499 or whatever, but you know, it was all right. It's now $10 a month and you're getting more content that you may not want. It's uh, it's almost cable again, right? Sorry, that's, that's just the way business goes. All right, next thing we've got to talk about is the Nate Diaz contract situation. So we won't focus too much on this. Uh, yeah. All right, next thing we've got to talk about is the Nate Diaz contract situation. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on this because a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about, you know, whether or not it was a good idea for the UFC to release Nate, you know, how it would affect all parties. We covered a fair amount of this stuff already, but we do now know that Diaz had not been offered any formal opponent, um, for quite some time, had been offered multiple names with a re-up of his contract. So he would have had to sign a new contract, sign that, and then he gets one of multiple opponents that we've kind of heard floating out there, Um, and that this is the last fight on his current contract. This is all courtesy of an interview with Ariel Hawani. And so following that interview, where we've kind of got this new information, right? They finally announced that Nate Diaz versus Hamzat Chemayev will headline UFC 279. So non-title fight pay-per-view, which is rare, but Diaz has enough of a name and Chemayev is enough of a rising star. Kind of makes sense. And we also got some comments. Um, I forget which post-fight press conference it was, but Dana White was asked about Diaz's contract situation where he said, oh, we've got to offer him three fights a year. You know, we're not holding him hostage to that type of thing. And that was refuted by Francis Ngannou, Chris Cyborg, Diaz himself, multiple people saying, no, that's not the case. Uh, John Nash, who's looked over many UFC contracts has never seen anything like that in the wording. It's one of those things where, okay, Dana said, this uh, seems to have multiple sources contradicting him and no word from Dana first of all why would would Dana do that well it's just PR right you gotta remember that Dana is a promoter first and foremost it's what he's always been which means he will spin anything as he needs to to keep the UFC in a good light to keep things rolling That's, that's what he does He's very good at it. He's extremely good at it. But this isn't something where he's not in the know about how this works. He might not be involved as hands-on as a lot of people think. In fact, I would imagine that most people, most people's perception of Dana White and contracts is is wrong. If you've worked in the MMA industry, you've heard the rumors, if you've seen some of the more open... Uh, you know, podcasts like hawani has done lately and things of that nature. You know that really it's Hunter Campbell who does a lot of the contract negotiation stuff. UFC's chief business officer. Dana can get involved, but he's not the main point of contact there. He hasn't been for a while. So it's not that he and Diaz are necessarily sitting down. I mean, and Diaz is a big enough name. Maybe they're sitting down, right? Um, But it's not that Dana is the one that's always sitting down doing that stuff. So it's possible that Dana is thinking of a time when maybe they did have to offer him three fights or there is a change in the contract that we don't know about in newer contracts. That could all happen too, right? The Sunset Clause that was added in 2017, that didn't come out until pretty recently. That, oh, there's actually a five-year Sunset Clause where you cannot be stuck in this perpetual contract. Maybe they've added in three fights a year offering to newer contracts we don't know about. It's very possible. But as of right now, those comments seem to be refuted and we haven't heard anything to the contrary. And Diaz looks to be fighting out his last fight against Hamzat Shemayev. Um, doesn't sound like he's re signed. Doesn't sound like he has any plans of re signing. He really, you know, was much, much more about just. Being able to test free agency didn't even sound like he wasn't necessarily against coming back to the UFC. Um, Although I'm sure this did not help their relationship, but you know, he is now going to fight Hamzat and then be free to do whatever he wishes. I expect we'll see more and more of this, right? 2017 and 2016 contracts With this sunset clause, um, it changes the game. It really, really does. Nganou was the first, and we've mentioned this before on the podcast. Nganou was the first, he will not be the last. There will be other fighters who are upset with their contract and who the UFC would like to keep around where they won't be able to. It, It just won't be possible. They'll still, again, use the same tactics that they have to keep that scarcity resource of name value fighters through offering, you know, new fight contracts with select opponents that people want and increases in pay, which is, again, just the the business move, right? It's what they've been doing since their inception. So that's still going to happen. But the fact that Diaz can hold out and then get this fight with Chimaev because I think the UFC kind of realized they weren't going to get him to re-sign and and then re-up. And so they've essentially said, all right, well, let's get one last bigger fight out of him. Let's try and bump a guy we're looking to push, which would be Chimaev at this point. And that's how you got that for the main event of 279. But, you know, back in the day, they would have just kept, Extending. They would have said, hey, we offered you these fights, we're going to extend the contract. And it just would have been this perpetual thing over and over again. This is a a defining moment. Diaz is one of the biggest names in the sport. He is one of the few people that has crossover recognition and potential for what he was able to do against Conor McGregor, right? He's not nearly as big as Conor McGregor. He's not anywhere, you know, um, near a household name as him or, or Ronda Rousey, but he's recognizable. There are a fair amount of casual, truly casual fans. I will actually, let me take that back. Most casual fans know who he is. And there are people that have never watched the sport who would probably, Oh, I've heard of that name before, or, Oh, I think, right. He was the guy that fought McGregor, right? Like they're that's the kind of weight Nate pulls. That doesn't always trans. Slate into financial success, right? But um, for the business, but it, it's important. And the fact that he is currently getting out of that contract is a big deal. And being able to say, "Yep, no, I'm, I'm done. I want to test free agency." It's it's a changing time in the business, and we will see where things go. Um, but but it's a it's a big big moment. Do not underestimate how big of a moment it is in terms of the business itself, because as more and more of these guys are able to go elsewhere, that's what will potentially, and I say potentially because it will still take a long time and a lot of different, a lot of different things to all fall into place for this to happen. But it opens up the door for the first time in a long time of a true threat, competitive threat to the UFC, right? And it doesn't necessarily, again, have to be another MMA promotion. Jake Paul has been calling out fighters. If Diaz ends up fighting Shemaev, win or lose, and then goes and fights Jake Paul, that's going to be a huge pay-per-view especially if Chamaya you know, wrestles Diaz all day, right? If that happens, then in the build between Paul and Diaz, you can talk about, well, that was MMA. That was wrestling. No, we're boxing. You know, I'm going to be standing and banging with him. It's just going to be st- all this stuff. That's a huge boost. That's Jake Paul's biggest name. Now, Paul still has to get through. Um, I forget who the short notice replacement is since Tom, Tommy Fury dropped out, but, um, he's still got to get through him and keep, you know, his lure up. But if he continues to do that, Diaz versus Paul is the no-brainer answer here. It's definitely what's best for business for Paul and almost certainly what's best for business for Nate Diaz. He's going to get his biggest payday easily if he goes and he fights Jake Paul. Now, barring that fight, right, let's say Paul loses, he doesn't want to box anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Then Diaz could still go box and probably make way more money than he's going to make in MMA. Um, he could find somebody to kind of do a, you know, cross-promotional boxing type fight with. But, you know, that's that's Diaz's best option right now, is boxing, if he still wants to fight. If he doesn't, he's got name value. He's got a brand he can go sell and spend into a million different things, right? He'd be able to sign with just about any other MMA promotion or combat promotion. And even if he's not fighting, could be a part of branding things, go to events, do all these other things. It, it would open a lot of doors for him. If he wants to fight and Paul is off the table, then the UFC is the best option. I know he doesn't have the best relationship with him, but that's where he's going to get the most money easily. Outside of boxing, I think most likely the scenario here is regardless of what happens against Chimaev, Diaz boxes somebody. Paul is is the cash cow, right? But if Paul can't be bothered or it doesn't work out, there are other options for Diaz to go out and box and make far more of a percentage of the purse than he would and overall revenue, rather, uh, than he would in the UFC. And he's got enough of a name value by himself that even against just a mid-name boxer, it probably does well enough that he, he gets good money, right? At least that's the thought. We'll see. I mean, heck, you could do Anderson Silva versus Nate Diaz in boxing. Think about that for a moment, right? I mean... That would do very well. So I think boxing is is Diaz's best bet at this point, and that's where he's going to go. But interesting times with these fighter contracts, especially in the UFC, right? Other promotions, uh, it's much easier to, to get out of those contracts or to kind of be treated as an independent contractor. But UFC has always, always been kind of tight um, and keeping keeping those fighters close is a big deal. This is arguably the biggest name that the UFC has had to let go while they're still fighting, right? Uh, at least in in this era. So we'll see. I mean, I'm not going to go into a Randy Couture, or a Tito. Like, I'm I'm talking about the this modern era. So let me know your thoughts on the whole situation. Where should Nate Diaz go? Uh, What do you think is best for business for him? Should the UFC throw a ton of money at him to try and keep him uh, or give him some kind of you know? flexibility in his contract. Let me know your thoughts on all of this because it's a big one. All right, next up is our quick hit section for the Fight Business Podcast. And so first we're gonna talk about the UFC's new TV deal in Brazil, or media rights deal rather. So according to MMAfighting.com, the UFC is in advanced negotiations with multiple Brazilian outlets for new broadcast deals that would kick off in 2023. Their current deal with Globo and Globo owned pay per view channel Combate will wrap up at 2022. And apparently, they are very far from reaching a new deal. So, there's a lot of different suitors for the UFC down there. A band, which is the fourth largest Brazilian TV network in audience and revenue, is currently the front runner. But you've also got a couple of other names that one or two I can't pronounce. And then Twitch is also apparently. In the uh, running UOL, one of the most viewed websites in the country, is, is having conversations. Lots of different options here. What we do know from other reports is that the UFC is likely to get twice whatever the rights deals were with Globo. That's been their overall and seems on average uh, re up with media broadcast deal rights. So, not sure where they're going to land, but definitely looks like. Uh, they will be somewhere in the Brazil, it, the Brazil that won't be Globo, and I would say it even seems, despite Band being the front runner, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him on a streaming only network, right, or a, or a website. So, if you're a Brazilian viewer of this podcast, shout out to you. Uh, you were probably one of very few, but uh, you're gonna have to watch the UFC on a new new TV channel or website that's what it sounds like uh, so that's that next we've got to talk about the one championship press conference uh, they've announced several dates for 2023 um i believe the first date starts in august you've got some november dates in there as well it's q you could say second half of 2023 but really it's it's closer to q3 and four um Or I'm sorry, which would be the second half. Good. Sorry. My brain is scrambled. It's closer to Q4. Um, You've got, I believe, late August um, or August 20th or so that area for the first event. Um, It's a big deal, right? Uh, Rich Rich Franklin was asked about events being on U.S. soil. Um, He seems to say, yes, we're going to try and have more events here in the U.S. That would be a huge deal uh, coming across the pond, so to speak, the other pond, not the the british one. Um to host events here. So one making some big moves and and the fact that Amazon is going to be showing one and was there, you know, talking about the partnership synergy. Again, in terms of the actual monetary deal and tracking of numbers and things of that nature, we won't have much insight would be my guess, but it's a big move and so 2023 one events are happening and they will be on Amazon prime, which is a big deal. Uh, lastly, we've got UFC lobbying. So uh, Tim Bissell, I hope that's how you pronounce the last name uh, over at bloody elbow has done some great work over there. And he has done a recent article on UFC paying lobbyists uh, to, although we don't know, exa- it's important to point out, we don't know exactly which way, the lobbyists are arguing, although one could easily infer they're against uh, some of these new bills that have gone through the House and are looking through the Senate for approval, uh, which is, you know, um, essentially these laws, to break it down in layman's terms, these laws would change the definition of an independent contractor and almost certainly affect the gig economy across the board. Uh, you would see Uber drivers, you would see UFC fighters, you you would see a lot, of, even myself as a consultant for what I do, my own business, I might be affected by this. Um and, and it's a big deal. It's past the House of Representatives. It was introduced there, at least in the US this is all the US, by the way, if you didn't notice uh it's past the House of Representatives. It has made it to the Senate. It's got all of the Democratic co-sponsors except for the two Arizona reps, uh, Kristen Sinema and um, Mark Kelly, and then also, I believe, Mark Andrews, another Democrat. Uh, But an important thing to know about all this is it's almost certainly going to die. uh, Unless the Democrats remove the filibuster, which seems like Joe Manchin refuses to pretty much do, Republicans would almost certainly filibuster this because this would put a lot of burden on businesses with the extra benefits, the rules around um, classifying more people as employees instead of independent contractors. Republicans here have been fighting that for quite some time, and I cannot imagine they would not filibuster this in the Senate, even if they got the three holdouts um, from the Democrats to sign on and get it to Kamal Harris to, for the tiebreaker. I, I think that it's almost certainly going to die in the Senate. Could I be wrong? Sure. But I, I really don't see that being a big thing. Um, I, I, I don't hold your breath is what I'll say based on what I know from American politics and what, what I'm seeing here. So that was our quick hit section. Let me know if I missed anything uh, on that or if there's anything else, you know, you want to discuss in that realm, always feel free to hit me up. But yeah, uh, just a couple of important things we need to touch on before we get to our last segment. All right, last thing we're going to talk about today is a segment we talk about a lot on the Fight Business Podcast, which is fighter pay. Now, we're looking at this again, and I, I feel like it's important to preface why we're looking at this subject again, because as the macro and micro environments change for the MMA industry. We have to keep reevaluating fighter pay from a perspective of, is it good for business? Right? And yes, we'll look at all the, you know, players involved. Is it good for promotions? Is it good for fighters? Is it good for fans, et cetera? But we have to do this because especially in a time right now where inflation is sky high, Um, You had the European Central Bank raise their rates for the first time, I think, over a decade. Um, You see the cost of everything going up. You see wages in multiple industries going up. You have to look at this and say, okay, should promotions be paying their fighters more? Starting, I, I said 2023 earlier, but I mean, it could be any new fighter signing a new contract as of right now with everything going on in the macro environment is a good business. And of course, as always, the answer really depends on the party, right? If you're talking about smaller promotions who live and die on fighters going out and selling tickets, uh, being local names, having a gym that has enough pull, uh, putting on events that, you know, people like, I want to go see the fights. We're kind of diehard MMA fans, really, who are like, yeah, I want to go see some guys fight um, for 20, 30 bucks in a baseball stadium, minor league baseball stadium. If you're doing that type of promotion, right? You have got to think about what the other promotions of your size are doing, and whether or not you can afford to not increase fighter pay. Because at that level, while a lot of fighters are just trying to go through and build their resume and then make it to one of the big leagues of Bellator or UFC or what have you, if another small promotion down the road is going to be paying them a couple hundred bucks more, that could be double in some cases on the regional scene, right? Um, That's important, especially if you're, you know, and, and that's the real, real regional scene where it's, you're probably in a geographic area you're okay to to keep pay near the same, right? Depends on what your competition locally is there because then it's really all if you're that size it's all about geography. If you've got no other MMA promotions in a, you know, 300-mile radius, you can keep your fighter pay whatever you want. You can sell tickets for the same thing they've been sold forever or raise them slightly with your additional costs of producing the event, all that stuff, but you're safe. If you're in a place where, you know, you're a metro area or near a metro area where fighters can easily go an hour, hour and a half and get more money, then you got to kind of consider it. If you are a level of promotion like LFA or Titan FC or, you know, any one of those type of feeder leagues into the bigger promotions, that is a little a, a little more Dicey, just because if you're on that level, right, at that point, pay is going to become more and more relevant because fighters at that level are ultimately, again, trying to get to a true pro level and make this their career in general. I've seen very few or talked to very few fighters in those types of promotions who aren't looking to become full-time fighters and quit whatever job they've got going on. So any additional bump in pay that can help them take less hours if they have a part-time job or, um, you know, or spend more time in the gym because they don't have to get put more hours in at work because they're getting more pay. That's a bigger deal. You know, LFA has built this reputation of, you know, churning out big name contender and champion after champion. a big reason they're able to attract so many new up and coming bright prospects is because of that rep. If they start losing prospects because some people are paying a little bit more in other places, uh, you know, that's that's something to consider. It is. So for those level size promotions, I think you got to look at geography and you've got to look at your what your competitors are doing, but it might be best for business to raise paid. You don't have to do it again, a ton, right? But since you're generally producing the event at that level, you're going to have rising costs. You're almost certainly going to have to raise the price of tickets. And from there, you know, you'll be able to get some, ideally all of the, you know, additional costs you've taken on will be offset from that. If you can raise into a price where you get some additional revenue, cut back a percentage of that for providers. That probably makes good business sense because if you're able to offer those up and coming prospects at that level, higher pay, even if it's just a minor amount of higher pay than some of your other competitors, you're more likely to get the best names to flow through, which will help your business and continue to help you grow and be that kind of feeder league, right? So that's what I would say on that level of promotion. When we get to the big guys, again, the answer here is, is Probably yes. Um, Depending on your level in the fighter hierarchy, right? So the UFC, we know, caps their fighter pay, overall fighter pay at 20%. But we know as their revenue continues to grow, that means fighter pay will increase because 20% of a larger number means it's going to be more money overall. So as long as revenue continues to go up, then yeah, they'll just naturally increase fighter pay. That's what they're going to do. Now, that being said, we've seen a lot of 10K, 10K, Dana White Contender Series contracts or 12K entry contracts. But that's more of replacing those middling veterans who aren't going to fight for a title, don't have a big enough name value that they're actually going to elevate somebody that's been coming up Uh, I'm sure aren't hitting the metrics the UFC wants to see and getting rid of that and bringing in new prospects that might actually become a champ or be a bigger name that will help elevate other champions type type situation. Right? So that's what's going on in that scenario. Um, In terms of paying your base fighters more, if you're somebody like the UFC or Bellator or PFL, a new guy coming in, right? (sighs) At that point, again, it probably doesn't make much sense to bump pay up. It really doesn't. Um, they prospects. They're unproven at the pro level, or they're maybe semi-proven. At, and again, I say pro level. They're pro MMA fighters, but at the highest level. Let me rephrase it. They're unproven at the highest level most times. Paying them more overall isn't going to get you a ROI that's generally positive, I would imagine, right? A lot of prospects wash out. I mean, the majority of prospects wash out. It's all about finding those diamonds in the rough. And generally, you've got a lot of people that come in and out through the UFC, Bellator, one, all those places. You don't really need to be paying them more because you're not going to get more of an ROI. Unless it's a very bright prospect, someone you're super high on, who's made a name for themselves or has a look or something that you really think is marketable. There's really not a big reason to up fighter pay. If you're the promotion, if you are a name value that maybe isn't champ, right. Kind of makes sense to bump that up a little bit more. If you are a Anthony Pettis, if you are a Rory McDonald, a, you know, uh dj demetrius johnson a stamp fair text if you're those guys uh kayla harrison obviously if you have a name for yourself or you've been a former champion or you've fought champions or you've just you know really just found a way to kind of become something like sean o'malley right um become kind of a force of, of marketability if you're a promotion, it makes sense to raise those people's pay. And people that, you know, prospects that have shown that they really could go to the next level, it probably makes sense to boost those up even just a little bit. Because those are the people you're going to get into more bidding wars with and more free agency testing and all of that, right? We just saw Kayla Harrison get semi ball from the UFC, according to her, uh, and then have Bellator offer something in PFL match. It makes sense to raise what you were offering Harrison that much more if you can take her away from PFL, right? And that goes for any of those promotions. If you're the UFC, it probably makes more sense to bring in Harrison. Uh, although, I mean, UFC again with their their media rights deal is kind of insulated to that, so they probably won't. But if you're um, if you're especially one PFL or Bellator, it makes more sense. To raise your prices, or sorry, raise your well, yeah, raise your prices to the consumer and then raise the offer for fighters. Because if it gets you somebody like Kara, Kayla Harrison or a name value that draws eyeballs to your product, it's probably worth it in this environment, right? Like Jeremy Stevens, not a huge name, but a recognizable name it makes sense for the PFL to make sure that they're bumping up his pay and he's comfortable so that he stays and hopefully draws more eyes to the tournament. Right. Chris Wade complaining about his fighter pay. I mean, again, totally understandable, but he doesn't have the name value that somebody like Stevens or Pettis or Roy McDonald, or even Brendan Laughlin has. And that kind of hurts his position. Um, right now and moving forward, especially in 2023, it makes sense for promotions to bump up the pay of those guys. Especially if you're not the UFC, if you're the UFC, you've got more. Okay. This is my final offer. If you go over it, whatever. Cause I've got this $750 million meteorized deal. Cause like $1.5 billion deal with ESPN over five years, right? Like whatever. But if you're, any of these other guys that is vying for that number two spot or vying to take away some of the market share of the UFC, those fighters are key right now. And, and the bright prospects that might become stars uh, also just downright essential in this macro environment. So makes sense for promotions in a lot of cases right now to raise fighter pay for their own benefit. That sucks for consumers, right? Uh, because an increase in fighter pay definitely means they're going to pass it off or as much off to the consumer as they possibly can, which means ticket prices are going up. Uh again, UFC ticket prices are insane. Uh I don't know if you've seen them lately compared to prior to the pandemic, but it's it's a bit ridiculous. I haven't seen uh PFL, Bellator, that type of stuff prices as much, but you know that. They're going to pass on those extra costs to the consumers. So it is a bummer for fans. But at the same time, it, it's kind of a necessary bummer. In my estimation, in most situations right now, it in- makes sense to increase fighter pay. The only exceptions to that are, again, prospects entering into a UFC Bellator PFL, that scenario entry level contracts, pretty much staying where they are and in any type of veteran or, you know, prospect who who's had some fights in those bigger promotions, but isn't really of name value or so that's, I mean, let me retract what I said earlier. That's that is most situations, most situations you're not actually raising fighter pay, but um, beyond that, you are. So it's it's kind of a split, right? Um, it, it makes sense to fight and, and give that bump right now, because we also don't know what's going to happen in 2023. If a recession comes, then you're going to be, you know, holding on to dear life. Some of these other promotions, especially the ones that are not in the black right now are going to be needing those name value guys to come through. So it's a mix, but generally I would say outside of the exceptions I've already mentioned, it makes sense for promotions to bump up fighter pay. Let me know your thoughts on this. Let me know if you believe my analysis is off. If you think that, you know, fighters should be paid significantly more anyway, they should be kept lower so that tickets to consumers and fans are lower. Uh, Let me know all that stuff because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on all of that as well. But yeah, I would say most situations outside of what I've mentioned, promotions should probably pony up fighters a little bit more. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate you listening to this week's podcast. Been working on a couple other things that, again, I keep saying that we will get to them. I promise I am not just blowing smoke here. We've got things for you in the latter half of this year. I am excited to show you it's been a long arduous process, but we are getting there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, bell notification if you're on YouTube. If you're listening on Anchor, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Apple, what have you, really appreciate it as always. Uh, much love. Let me know your thoughts, comments, all that stuff. Been great talking to some of you out there. Been appreciating you reaching out to me via DM through Twitter. Uh, keep doing that or comment section on the Sure Dog articles. Those are also great. With that in mind, until next time get money.